All right, let's, let's go to the Psalms, Psalm 73. I want to start by even just saying, as we're going through this, this primer, this Old Testament primer, why the Psalms? Why this big chunk of our Old Testament there, there's all these songs and poems, and it's so different, so remarkably different than the rest of the Old Testament. Why? Why did God give us this book of Psalms? How are we supposed to approach it? We do that very differently, obviously, than reading through the book of Esther or reading through the book of Genesis or something like that. I want to use an analogy that I, I heard from Tim Keller that I think helps me understand the purpose for Psalms when I get to the Psalms in my Bible reading. Um, if you were digging a road, okay, which is not hard for those of us in Iowa City to understand building a road, right? It seems like every road is now being torn up all around us, right? Uh, I leave uh, trying to go down one road and have to take a detour, come back, and that's a different detour, right? We're seeing this all over town. So let's just say uh, we're trying to build a road, and all of a sudden we encounter a, a massive boulder, and that's going to stop us from, from digging through and building this road. If you're a civil engineer, just suspend reality for a moment, right? I'm just going to talk to the rest of us about this idea. So if you come across this boulder, now, uh, if you took some explosives to get rid of this boulder, and you just like duct taped them onto the side of that boulder, right? And then ran and hid behind your truck and right, it blew up. You might do minimal damage to that boulder. You might get some shards of rock, you know, splintering here and there. But you've actually done very little to actually move that rock, right? If you came to a boulder, though, needed to use some explosives, if you bore a hole down into the center of that thing and used a whole bunch of explosives and then ran further away and detonated that thing, right, you could explode that whole thing and it would go everywhere and you could progress. I think the Psalms are kind of like boring that hole deep into us and having maximum impact. The Psalms give us an opportunity to go deep into our hearts, our souls. In fact, you're going to find some unique words. If, if our English Bibles translated every word from Hebrew as they were written, it would kind of throw you off. Because through this Psalm, you're going to hear things like, in my heart, from my kidneys, from my bowels. <laughs> the, the, the Hebrew language will use all these inner organ kind of words about what's going on. Why? Because deep, deep in us, it, by the way, let me just stop. The ancient Hebrews were not unaware of anatomy. Like they carved up a whole lot of animals and knew exactly what kidneys were <laughs> lungs were and hearts did, right? What they're saying, though, is those most protected, most vital organs, those life-giving organs deep in, are actually who we really are. That's where life is really pulsing out from us. So the Psalms will take truths that might, you know, be in your awareness, in your mind, and they drive them deep, deep, deep into your kidney, into your guts, into your soul where you're really churning, right? They, they actually kind of give you a journey deeper into your inner being than maybe other parts of your Bible do. So what I wanted to do when I knew that we were going to be teaching, you know, the, the church how to approach the Psalms, I thought, well, I just want to encounter a Psalm that I haven't taken a deep dive into. So some of you are doing the same Bible reading plan that I am, New Testament and Psalms. So the next one on my reading plan was Psalm 73. So that's why we're going to Psalm 73. And I'm telling you, taking a deep dive into this psalm has been life-giving 
to me as, I, as I've done it, and I hope that it will be for you. Here's what I would like to do, though. I'd love to have you stand up as I read Psalm 73. I'm just going to read it without interruption, without commentary first, and let the psalmist take you on the journey that he intends to and even ask the Spirit to do something remarkable just in the reading of this powerful little chunk of Scripture as I read for you. Psalm 73. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Oh man, they have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts just run wild. They mock. They speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, as people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words, the wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease, and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I'm, I'm afflicted all day long. I, I'm punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things out loud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They, they come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid. I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh, my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. Yeah, Jesus, please help us to understand uh, these words that you've given to us. May it be that this psalm written so many generations ago will land into our hearts as if it's written exactly for us and for this day and for this moment. We want to be taught. Please lead us and guide us by your spirit, Lord. That's what we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As you look at Psalm 73, there's a question that the psalmist is asking, and it's a question for all of us. Is it really worth following God? Is it worth it? It's going to give you the permission to ask this really stirring, shaking question that sometimes you don't feel like you should even say out loud. The question this psalmist 
is asking and pondering and spending a lot of time to, to, to churn this around in his soul is, is it really worth it? So are all my friends and family right? Are they right when they mock me for being a follower of Christ? Are they actually right? And I'm, I'm like the cosmic fool for giving my heart to God and following him. Because that's what a lot of people think, right? Are they right and I'm wrong? That's the question that this psalmist is asking. And understand, he doesn't just give a quick cerebral response. No, don't think like that. Here's what you should think. It doesn't do that, right? He actually lets you churn on this and even takes you deeper maybe than, than you would go on your own. He, even if, okay, even if in those moments that you're asking that question, you become a little bit irrational, even if you become a little melodramatic in the way you're approaching that question, actually, I think this psalmist is going to do that for you. And I think the way that he leads us in the way that he answers that question, it's going to have maximum impact. Because it's not just going to be, here, think this way. It's going to go deeper into our kidneys, okay? I think it's going to go deeper into our guts if we let the psalmist uh, take us on this journey. So, so the outline that I'm going to have us walk through is not a typical outline. I'm actually going to try to follow the stream of consciousness of this psalmist. It's Asaph here. We don't know if Asaph was actually a person Many of the psalms were written by David, as we know, but this one says Psalm of Asaph. We don't know if that's a grouping of psalms or an individual person, but whatever. This particular psalm attributed to Asaph, and I just want to follow the stream of consciousness as Asaph works through this really important question, is it actually worth it? Are we collectively a bunch of fools for following God? So the first thing that he throws down to us there is this reality. Often in these moments, my head knows what's right, but my gut tells me something very different. I know what's right, but somehow my, my gut is saying something different. Like that very first line, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. This is almost like training all the Veritas kids, like kids camp this week. If this was one of the memory verses, right, just robotically, like God is indeed good to Jeff, to the pure in heart. I know that, right, I'm just going to memorize that, I'm going to put it in my head, that's what's right, I've just got to memorize that, true, right, check that off, right, my head has this right, he's declaring it, my head has this right, but man, the, the real way that I'm feeling about this runs counter to that, my gut is telling me something different than my confession of, of my head is, is telling me, um, there's a, a Hebrew scholar that rewrites the Psalms just from Hebrew in a beautiful way. And here's the way that uh, he writes this. An Asaph Psalm, he says, Only good to Israel is God. Only good to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost strayed. My, my steps had, had nearly tumbled, for I envied the revelers. I like the way that he uses that word. I, the revelers. I saw the wicked's well-being. The revelers, the self-confident the carelessers, right? All those people that could care less about God out there, I'm looking over at them, and that's really throwing me off right now. Like, I want to just put my head down and believe God is good to me, good to Israel, pure and heart. I want to believe that. I want to just keep repeating that, but I keep looking around at all the revelers, the carelessers, and call me crazy. But it sure seems like they've got it better than me. And that doesn't seem to make sense. 
Why are all the I could care less people, the ones who later in the psalm are even wagging their tongues at God, (laughs) why do they seem to be having an easier go of things than I am? In fact, if I'm really honest, I kind of feel like I want to switch teams sometimes. I'd actually rather be on the other side of this thing. I want to be over where life is easy and not in the place that I am. And this psalm is actually giving me freedom for that kind of honesty, right? Understand, look more carefully at those opening verses because Asaph hasn't given in yet, right? He's saying, as for me, my feet almost slipped. He hasn't given in, but man, it's it's tugging. (laughs) It's tugging hard. He, He hasn't just, you know, completely let go and jumped over to the other side, but his anchor feels like it's loosening a little bit and it's freaking him out. That's what's going on. And so he's just saying out loud what some of us come to as we look around and say, man, I thought by following God and getting baptized and joining that church, and every, I thought that was going to set me on a path to have a good life. Seems like the good life's happening with the godless, sometimes the most godless people. What's, what's with it? Guys, we all experience this. I, I don't want people looking back like, I am shocked. How could he say such things? I would never. No. We all experience this, right? Are you going to give me a nod? Have you ever had these thoughts, right? I'm, th- I'm talking about all the way from being a toddler. The good, obedient toddler that all of a sudden has the rotten screamer toddler rip something out of their hands, and because it's such a commotion, the parent or the guardian, whatever, actually makes the disobedient one happy by letting them keep it, and the good, obedient toddler that's just doing the right thing is just sitting there with empty hands like, Why? Why does the good guy end up with empty hands and the screaming, crabby, rotten kid get everything he wants, right? Well, just so you know, toddlers, (laughs) that goes all the way into the parents of that toddler who are now saying, wait a minute, I'm the dude that just lost his job. Why does my neighbor, the party fiend, tailgating, loud, reckless, godless dude seemed to be making money all over the... Did I just see a new truck go into his driveway, right? I mean, I, I can't even go into middle school, high school, college, you know. I, I was going to start trying to make illustrations for you guys, so I even went on trends for high schoolers. I'm like, I don't even understand this. I'm just going to look like a creeper. I'm just going to stop right there. What I'm saying is from toddler all the way, at least until 60, it's still going on. We have these moments, right? Why are my hands empty and theirs are full? Is it senseless for me to keep going on this path of following God? So here's how it plays out. So my head knows what's right. I'm trying to hold on. But man, I, I, I'm looking around and I'm, I'm feeling it quake a little bit. So here's how it plays out. Next thing that happens is I start fixating on how good they really have it. I start staring. I look around and pretty soon I'm staring at how good the people on the other side of the fence really have it. And I start exaggerating it. I start really exaggerating it to the point of, absurdity. You guys, this is one of my favorite sections of the whole psalm. Like, look at verse 4 again. They have an easy time until they die. Like, he's just exaggerating it. It gets really absurd. 
Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're, afflict, they're not afflicted like most people. Here's, here's what he's saying. They never have problems ever. I'm looking over there, and all I can see is a cakewalk. They never, ever have problems until they die. Now, is that ever true about anybody? No, but that's what I start. I, I start this little mind game, right? I start exaggerating things, right? I love you guys. Verse 7, there's this translation, uh, this Jewish Bible translation. Here's the way it has it. Their eyes peep out through folds of fat. <laughs> I just sat and just like, the, the exaggerated way, right? This is true Hebrew poetry, just exaggerating things. Their eyes can barely peep out because they're so fat, because they get so much food all the time, right? They can't even see through all the fat on their face, right? But that's just an exa- it's that exaggerated thing. That's what the psalmist is doing, right? Because I'm glad he's doing that because it gives me permission. Like, I start making this stuff up. I start looking at those that I think are prospering, and it just gets ridiculous, right? Why? He says, look at verse 12. Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase their wealth. They're always, 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 everything's exaggerated. And you know what it's driven by? He told us way back up in verse 3, I envy them. I envy the arrogant. This is all, all this exaggerated, look at them, look at them. It's driven by envy. You know what? I'm calling them out, but it's only because I wish I had what they have. That's what's going on. I'm pretending to take the moral high ground here, but actually, I really want their stuff. And here's the way envy works, and this is the way that the psalmist, it's working in them. This is the kind of poison that's going on in in his kidneys. Um, Envy does this. At first, I look over and see the guy with the new car, and I want it. And then because I can't have it, I get angry with him because he does have it, And then I want to destroy everything that he's got. And so you know what? I start keying the Lexus in the parking lot, right? Oh, you think you're so good, right? Did you have a big bow on it at Christmas when you got that Lexus? You know, and I start start making up a whole, oh, you live such a good life, don't you? You know what I mean? That's what's going on. I not only want it, I get mad because they have it. And now it just turns into rage and ugliness. That's what's going on here, right? When we give full vent to this envy, I start exaggerating what they really have. And that takes me to the next thing that he does. Then I start fixating on how much of a victim I am. That gets exaggerated. I'm exaggerating how good they have it, and I start exaggerating how bad I have it. Look at verse 13 again. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? I am afflicted all day long. They've got nothing but fat food all day long, right? I've got nothing but affliction all day long. I am punished every morning. Is that ever true? No, but that's how he feels right now. He feels like this incessant, you know, I'm just a victim. I'm just innocent. He really believes he is pure of heart. Don't you get that way? They are only wicked all the time. I am only pure, pure as the driven snow. I don't deserve this right? Just feigning this innocence. I've never done anything. You know what it reminded me of? You guys know the familiar story of the, of the prodigal son? This is pure older brother in the prodigal son. I went back and I reread Luke 15 where this is. Here's what the older brother says. 
I do nothing but slave for you. Year after year after year, I am your slave. That's what he says to his father. And this is what we do to God. God, year after year, I'm doing nothing but slave for you. I've never disobeyed any orders. That's what the older brother says to his father. I have never disobeyed you one single time. Is it ever true of you? No, but in those moments, that's what we think, right? Wow, God, I, I slave for you. I never disobey every order. Not even once have I disobeyed you. You've never given me a party with my friends. Remember the older son says that? You've never given me a party with my friends. You know what was the shocking thing when I read through that again this week? He doesn't invite the father. He just wants the father to give him a party with his friends, and he doesn't even invite the father to be there. God, I don't necessarily want you. This is a real transactional way to think about our relationship with God. God, I don't really want you there, but can you just give me all sorts of party time? Can you just give me everything my heart and eyes desire? Yeah, you don't need to come, right? I just want the stuff that you have for me. And you never give it to me. You never let me have that stuff, ever, ever, ever. So I started exaggerating that, right? And then here's the turning point. Thankfully, the psalmist takes us there (laughs) because eternity actually brings him back to his senses. Thinking about eternity brings him back to his senses. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. Now, I love this part where all of a sudden there's a a huge pivot going on. And I want you to hear me out on this because this is coming from a guy who really values like mind, rational thinking, right? At this point though, the psalmist doesn't need me to open a theology book for him, okay? This is not time to say, you know, I've got an answer for that. It's in Wayne Grudem, page 694. This is not the time for a theology lesson. This is not the time to go back to catechism class This is not the time for data. No, actually, that's not true. Actually, let's weigh it out. Let me put the little T-bar. You know, no, no, no. This is not time because when I do that, I get to hopelessness. Look what he says in verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, when I tried to just rationally think my way through it, that left me hopeless. You know what I had to do? I actually had to enter God's presence. I actually had to go into a place of worship until I entered God's sanctuary. Look at this. You guys, this is, I, I want you to hear me on this. This is not a time just for cerebral thinking. You have to go to worship. You have to go to church. That's what he's saying. In our vernacular, it's time to go to church. You know why? Because I need Dalton to write another song that's going to teach me how to worship God in these moments, and I need him to coax me into worshiping. That's what I need right now. I don't need Dalton to sit me down with another theology book. You know what? I know what is right. I just don't feel it. And so I need these guys to to draw me into worship. I need Mark to open his Bible for me because I don't want to open my Bible right now. I'm just mad, right? So I need to step into this presence so somebody else will open their Bible and teach me because sooner or later, it's, it's going to start warming my heart. It's going to start getting through, right? I need to step into the sanctuary of God. I need my soul to engage. I need all of you to help me because all of a sudden I'm just being senseless. I'm being senseless like an animal. That's the way he describes it. 
I, I need to wake up, and it comes through stepping back into God's presence. I need the songs. I need the word. I, I, I need the prayers to get into my kidneys. In fact, that's the very word that he used. My innermost being there is the word kidney, the Hebrew word for kidney. I need it down in my guts. And it's only by stepping back into worship that I come to my senses, right? I had to understand their destiny, he says. They're the ones in slippery places. Look at that in verse 18, slippery places. Earlier he said, my feet, I feel like I'm slipping. Oh, wait, I realize I'm not slipping. I'm on solid ground. They're the ones that are on slippery places. But I wasn't feeling that, but that's what's actually true, and now it's dawning on him. You guys, I... I've used this before, but it's, it's so powerful. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory has this idea. As we think about the future destiny of all the people that surround us, here's what he says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember, as you look around, even look around this room, remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which is, if you saw it now, You'd be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. We've got to think about their destination. Where are these people going? Where are the people that surround me going. I've got to have what he talks about. I entered into God's sanctuary, and I started thinking about eternity. I started thinking about where this thing is going. And then it dawns on me, does it really matter in the long run if one dude has a bigger sandbox to play in than the other guy, right? Because in the grand scheme of things, this little life is so short and so minimal. It's like one little, you know, moment for a toddler in a sandbox, so does it really matter if their sandbox is bigger than my sandbox in the light of eternity? No. Does it matter that my Tonka trunk truck that I'm playing with has more rust on it than his new Tonka truck? Does that really matter? No, it doesn't. But I need to come to my senses and recognize, man, there's a future, right? Where is he or she going as I look across the fence? Where is their eternity? Has the stuff in my little sandbox clouded my vision to where that's all I can see is my little square of a sandbox, my little toys, and I can't see the destiny, the future, the eternal destiny of them and for me? I want you to do this little, little meditation with me right now. I want you to put in your mind, because this is what the psalmist is doing, put in your mind somebody that you think is the most maybe unjustifiably wealthy, successful, powerful person that you know. Think of a godless person, and don't make it abstract. I want you to have a person in your mind. Who is the most unjustifiably wealthy? They didn't deserve it. They should, why, why should they have so much success power? Do you have somebody in your mind? Think, think of a person. Here's what the Bible is actually saying that you need to embrace. Do you know what the most damning thing that a person of means, that person in, in, that you've got in your mind. You know what one of the most damning things that is true about that person? It's that they actually are getting everything they want. Let, let me explain it a little bit. So when you get to Romans 1, for instance, in Romans 1, he starts talking about the wickedness in our hearts. And three times he uses this chilling phrase. 
It's this idea of God gave them over. They wanted to chase this, and God gave them over. Gave them over. Gave them over. They actually started getting everything they wanted. That's what he's saying. To the point in Romans 1 where as long as they keep getting everything they want, the most damning thing that can happen is actually getting everything they want. By the time you get done with that, they are, it says in Romans 1, filled with unrighteousness, filled with evil, filled with greed, filled with wickedness. They're getting everything they want, and it's damning them more and more and more all the time. You know what the last description is in Romans 1 of those guys? They're unmerciful. You know what that means? It means not only do they have everything they want, they could care less that you don't. That's the description. And it's a description of condemnation. So that person that you think is in such a better place because they're getting everything they want, that's actually one of the most damning things that can happen to us in this mortal life, getting everything we want. One of the most chilling stories that Jesus told, and it's not actually a parable, it's a story. We know that because in parables, he doesn't use specific names and that kind of thing, but he actually tells us a story in Luke 16 about a rich man and this guy named Lazarus. Let me read this for you. Jesus said this, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. Is that sound like Psalm 73 language, right? So had everything he wanted, got everything he wanted. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. Oh man, he longed to be filled even with what would fall from the rich man's table. Instead, the dogs would come and lick his sores. They'd go from licking up the stuff under the guy's table to come out and licking this dude's sores. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And here it is, the destiny. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Now it goes on from there. But just that chilling moment. See, just on the other side of death, there's the poor guy, unjustifiably victim, true, <laughs> truly, you know, at, Lazar- at Abraham's side, being comforted, being secure, finally getting everything, his... his Stomach is full, he's comforted, and there's the rich dude that in this life got everything that he ever wanted far away off, far away from comfort, far away, right? His little sandbox was bigger than the other dudes and had more Tonka trucks and, you know, whatever in this life, and unmerciful, didn't care that the dude was out at the end of the gate, but we got to think about their destiny, I think pondering heaven and pondering hell can bring us back to our senses, right? Pondering the destiny, pondering heaven and pondering hell is an effective antidote to the imaginations that are just running wild. And so finally he prays, finally he prays, finally in this psalm we get a prayer. Verse 21, I became embittered, my my innermost being wounded, right? I was stupid, I didn't understand, I was an unthinking animal toward you, God. And yet, here's what's true, I love this. Yet, I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you take me up in glory. This psalmist is giving us license to brood and to groan and say stuff out loud 
Like maybe we would not feel like we should say this stuff out loud. But he gives us permission to do that. Because once you start doing that, once you start processing and being honest about what's going on in your kidneys, once you really start getting honest, all of a sudden it's going to cause you to look up at Jesus. And you know what you find when you look up at Jesus in that moment? His face actually isn't angry with you in that moment. And he hasn't turned away. And he hasn't just left you. And then you realize this. He's holding your hand. Look at that. I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. See, earlier, I felt like I was slipping, right? Verse 1. I, I felt like I was, I was losing ground. And then you realize the reason you didn't lose ground, the reason you didn't go falling back is, oh, Jesus, you've been holding me this whole time. And I've been ranting. Have you ever had a toddler that's ranting and raging, you know, like, rah, pulling your arm? And you, you get all done, and you're like, oh, wow, you... And you're actually looking down at me, not with anger and disgust, and you're not turning away out of embarrassment. You're looking down with love because you're holding my hand, not because I'm pure in heart, because you are, Jesus. I've been, wah, 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 you know, you're, you're the real pure in heart, and you love me. Even at, You've heard everything I just said, and you love me. So you're pure in heart, not me. That's my security. And you realize Jesus isn't shocked by all the injustices surrounding me because who has had more injustices done to him than Jesus Christ, right? It's like, oh, you think you've got it bad? <laughs> you think your pure life didn't get rewarded the way you wanted it to? Would you want to swap stories right now? You know, but, but he doesn't even throw that in my face, right? He just adores me and looks. Jesus isn't threatened by all the merciless bullies of the world you know what Jesus did? He died for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' love just keeps going and flowing and reaching out. He's patient, wanting even the most bullying person out there to come to repentance and follow him. So at the end of this psalm, Jesus hears all my ridiculous rantings, and he's still got my hand, and he's walking me to glory, and it ends like this. But as for me... God's presence is my good. All of a sudden, the little Tonka trunks, trucks are falling out of my hands, and I'm just looking up at this adoring Father. God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. Man. I just want so much for this psalm to take you to brutal honesty with what's really going on in your soul and then rescue you from that and point you to Jesus. Whom, whom have we around but Jesus, right? Take all my sandboxes and Tonka trucks and give me Jesus where he'll usher me into heaven one day to Abraham's side. <sighs> okay. I can take what's going on today, knowing that that's where you're leading me, right? Will you stand and pray with me? Here's how I want us to pray this morning. I want you right now to go back to that person that you were thinking of. I want you to pray right now for the most merciless, successful person that you know right now could, could care less about God. The, the one who's maybe, just, oh, how, does God know I know everything? You know, whatever. 
Will you pray right now? Because they're actually the one on the slippery places. And God is so patient. You know how I know that he's that patient? Because he was patient and let me be that guy until he rescued me. So if you just pray right now, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's somebody far off, whatever. Pray for God's mercy and compassion and stubborn love. Let's see some rescues around here. Let's see some miracles around here where God does the unthinkable and rescues yet another scoundrel to join all the rest of the scoundrels in this room who don't deserve it, but here we are because of what Jesus has done. And I also just want you to pray and thank God that somebody prayed for you in this same way. And here you are. And Dalton's going to lead us to worship. And the Bible has been open. And you're surrounded with God's people. Going to shake off those wrong, wrong things that we've been thinking and just going on our little rabbit trail, exaggerating everything. And all of a sudden we've come to our senses because we've stepped into the house of God. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have my right hand. Thank you that you've rescued me and that you continue to hold my hand. That's our hope. That's your mercy. That's your grace. That's what I believe. As we worship you now, Jesus, I pray that it would be from souls, from kidneys, from guts that really believe what we're about to sing to you. We pray in Christ's name.